Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Welcome to the Bud Zone. Please give a listen as we talk with our buds in the faith about the present rule and reign of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords in his church and over his world. Greetings and welcome to this episode of the Bud Zone Podcast. Our aim here is to speak with our buds in the faith, who are the means the Lord uses to encourage and edify his sheep, build his church, and expand his kingdom rule and reign. We talk with pastors, scholars, laymen from all over the church to learn how the Lord is using them in their respective ministries. And I am especially honored to be joined today by Dr. Yuri Brito. Brother, thank you so much for your time talking with me today. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, a couple of things. First of all, it was wonderful seeing you face-to-face a few months ago. Yes. And second, kudos on that background. Looks spectacular. Oh, <laughs> well, you can't see the Kuiper books, I don't think, but I do have, uh, the, whole, I have the whole set. You should like so you are. You're, you're making me feel at home. <laughs> Um, let me do this. Let me read the bio from your church website, Providence Church in Pensacola, um, to give everybody kind of an idea. It's not, it's not full at all. So I'll ask you to add to it, whatever you think needs to be there, but, uh, you are the senior pastor of Providence Church. Uh, you've been there since 2009, born in Northeastern Brazil, which I'm not sure if that's like Northeastern, uh, America where it's like all liberal and darkness, but anyway, uh, you're born in Northeastern Brazil. You've lived in the United States for over 25 years, earned a BA in pastoral studies from Clearwater Christian College, an MDiv and DMIN in pastoral theology from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. You are the editor of the Church Friendly Family, author of The Trinitarian Father, co-author of Commentaries on Ruth and Jonah, published by Athanasius Press, you were the founder of the Kyperian Commentary, an online resource for essays with over 20 contributors. You serve on the board as a board member of the Theopolis Institute, and you were a senior fellow for pastoral theology for the Center of Cultural Leadership. You blog at yuribrito.com and kyperian.com, uh, and you also have a substack that folks can find. And finally, because we don't want to leave out this important part, you've been married for 19 years to your lovely wife, Melinda, and you're the proud father of Abigail, Ezekiel, Ephraim, Elijah, and Ezra. So the Lord has had you busy. How do you do all this stuff? A little bit. <laughs> and I do want to update my I, my wife would be very frustrated. We have reached our 20th mark this past May. So we have, uh, we're officially married for 20 years. So we well, are congratulations. almost at a drinking relationship. Like that. <laughs> that's funny. A question about that may come up a little later. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's wonderful. Is there anything you'd want to add uh, besides editing the uh, marriage history there? <laughs> no, well, I've, I've done some additional writing for magazines and theological journals and things like that. And I have, um, I have a one book coming out hopefully in November and it's an exposition of the armor of God entitled the war of the priesthood where I connect the armor of God in Ephesians 6 to the priestly armor in Exodus 28, 29, and other passages in Leviticus. So I'm, I'm making the argument that Paul is borrowing from the priestly garments rather than some standard Roman soldier. And so that book will be out in uh, November, Lord willing, and I'll be happy to send you a link once that's available. Oh, that would be great, yeah. Um, and I and I love that kind of thing. What I, we had talked about briefly uh, when we connected, 
before we started recording was that I didn't know that you had, uh, that you were a board member, like a founding board member at uh, Theopolis and Dr. Lightheart, all that stuff. I am a constant beneficiary of the, of the work those guys are doing. And one of the things that most interestingly is their ability through all the different podcasts and some of the old conferences, how they can draw the, the old Testament, new Testament, they, there's discontinuity, of course, but I don't think much of the church today knows the intense continuity that there is between older covenant, newer covenant. It's like the page that says New Testament in your Bible really needs to be ripped out. That's a dangerous, dangerous page. Yeah. Um, so what yeah, you're, you're right. is great. Yeah, you're right. I think the what what the evangelical interpreter has failed to grasp is that think of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had one language. And his language was the Old Testament. And so when he's writing a different language, let's say there's 13 writings in the New Testament, he is writing to a different audience, but using the only language he knows. Yeah. And that's the Old Testament language. So, yeah, he's addressing different contexts, might even say different languages, right? Uh, Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. But he's using the only language he knows, which is uh, the Torah, the historical works, the prophets. And that's the language that he grew up in. He was he was liturgized in the language of the Old Testament. It's it's very likely, in fact, that he had the entire Psalter memorized as a, as a student. As he uh, as he sort of forsook the life that he had prior, he engaged and he immersed himself in the literature of the Bible. And that kind of language is the language that shaped him. So the expectations that evangelical have of the Apostle Paul just casually borrowing from Greek culture or some kind of philosophical work. If that happens, it is secondary or tertiary to his primary goal, which is to have the New Testament absorb the Old Testament and its new rituals. Well, I'll come back and ask you about that, but that's one of the things as well that um, if you look at the book of Romans and you look at the rhetorical style that, that Paul gives there, I'm asking a question, I'm answering the question, I'm asking the question as sort of a third third person, uh, scenario that's like Malachi. I mean that you go read the old Testament and you see, uh, occasionally in the prophecies, and I think it's Malachi that really does that. The Lord posits a question as if he's speaking third person and then he's answering that. Um, and I'm like, that's where Paul gets this, but you, you know, you read commentaries and they're like, well, though, this is a Greek method of dialogue and right. well, maybe it was, but nevertheless, I, your point is, is exceptional. Um, so, and I didn't know about your, uh, being, uh, on doc Sandlin's, uh, ministry either. So that's wonderful. He's been on the bud zone a few times. I wonder it's work too. So he, he's a, he's a dear brother. Now I want to ask you a standard bud zone question before we go further. I know that you're a pastor, you're a scholar, you're a theologian. So the answer to this question, I'm not looking for a sermonized or doctrinal answer. What I want to know is this question. Why are you a Christian? How did this happen? What's, what's the story? How did the Lord do this with you? My, my answer to that question is that the Christian faith is the most compelling faith. And it's compelling at, at three levels. It's compelling at a, at a normative level, at a historical level, and at an existential level. And a lot of this, of course, you are the embodiment of your own family tree, you know, for good or ill. And so I, I am the embodiment of my history. My father was a Baptist minister. Okay. And my, my father instilled in us a sense of, of gospel truth that, for me, at the time, uh, didn't carry the kind of weight it did. But as you grow, you begin to mature in the perspectives you had of the past. And as I matured in those perspectives, I realized that the Christian faith is compelling at at least those three fundamental levels. Let's start from the the, the last one, the existential level. It's compelling at an at an emotional level. In other words, as the Bible says, it it, it provides rest and peace for your soul. It has done that to me. It did that to me when my my own father died at the age of forty one. I don't know how I would have endured that level of crisis without Jesus. I don't know. So the existential level is the kind of thing that keeps you sane 
during times of chaos. The historical level is the level that says the Christian faith is compelling, and I can prove that it is compelling, not just in an evidential dimension, but I can prove that there are thousands of years of history of people who experienced the Christian faith and said it is good. And so what I don't want to what I don't want the Christian faith to be is the kind of exploratory thing that says, well, it feels good today, but it may not feel good tomorrow. Yeah. So the fact that it was existentially compelling, historically compelling was is a driving force as to why um, I am a Christian and I desire to die and be buried as a Christian, but also fundamentally because the normative, because the norm of the Christian faith is the scriptures, the, the word of God, and in it, as it is read, heard, received, absorbed, and lived out, there's nothing like it on planet Earth. It's a book that begins with an affirmation that God does something to creation, and it's a book that ends with an affirmation that God has done something to creation. And so a God that moves from glory to glory is a God that is compelling. He doesn't move from glory to misery, but from glory to glory to glory. And I think any human being hearing that message will say, that's how I want my life to be. Yeah, I wanted to kind of imitate that pattern. And so, and the Bible reveals that pattern again and again, that even amidst misery, we see that there's always promises. And if I want something to be compelling to my life as a Christian, I want a life that says that in the midst of my chaos, that there is a promise that I can grab onto. And that's the compelling dimension of the Christian faith. And that's why I am fundamentally and why I identify with and why it's the very core of my being to being a Christian man. That That is fabulous. How long did it take for you to realize you're going to be in ministry? What was that like? When I was, when I was 18 years old, I attended a little Christian school in Pennsylvania, and there was a man who was very much uh, just a gracious, a grandfatherly figure who sort of pulled me aside and began to see that I had particular gifts that other students didn't have. And he began to nurture those gifts by giving me opportunities to do Bible studies and even lead in the classroom. And the more I was engaged in those gifts, the more my local congregation, which at the time was incidentally a brethren church, which is that's an wow. interesting little element, they began to see those gifts and they began to give me opportunities um, uh, to, to preach and to do some singing as well on the side. But, but they began to see these gifts. And so I, I felt that the, the language of John Murray, that kind of internal and external call. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't just the kind of internal call that I said, I feel called, but it was the people around me were saying, you know, I, I think you should pursue this thing. And I fell in love with the ministry of the church, but it wasn't until college that I fell in love with the church itself. I had a very standard evangelical perspective of the church that the church was that place you went on Sunday morning and you enjoyed the fellowship, but that was it. And yeah. then when I was in college, I began to do some reading and that really compelled me to think of the church as something other. And I began to see the church as church history has seen the church, which is, this is the language that frightens a lot of evangelicals, but the church is our mother. Yeah. And when I began to view the church as our mother, um, I fell in love. The 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 um, the passions all came together. The love for the ministry and the love for the church, and that's how that was sort of the genesis of my pursuit of pastoral ministry. Wow, that's great. But that you know that language shouldn't share us if we know something about church history and we understand. Also, I think the symbolism that you see in scripture, you know, Israel is the bride, Israel is the wife and becomes unfaithful. The church is the bride of Christ. So the, the language reflects the metaphors and the symbolism that, that you already have inherent in scripture. So, well, that's wonderful. And you've been, what did I read? You, how long you've been at uh, Providence for? This is my 15th year. 15th. And uh, I came here as a 28 uh, year old uh, boy. That was uh, fresh out of seminary, and let's just say the congregation here has been very patient with me, and uh, I'm very grateful that when I came, I mean, I had a little bit of opportunity to work through certain issues, to think through certain issues regarding counseling and 
And uh, theologically, I was relatively still where I am today, but I had to learn how to put those things in practice. The church was mm-hmm. very small in those days. It allowed me a little bit of flexibility to, um, to to find my identity as a pastor. And so it's been 15 years where I have loved this congregation, and they have kindly returned their love towards me. So let me ask you about that, because that leads right into what I wanted to go to. Um, I had the occasion to visit with you guys um, a few months ago. I don't really remember exactly when it was. My son's over at um, the Navy there to be an aviator, and he's an officer with the Navy, and he attends your church. And by the way, I don't know if he's joined yet, but if he hasn't, you, you need to get busy with that guy. Okay, so Zach, are you listening to this? this is going worldwide. He's going to come after you. Um, but I came and visited, I wanted to meet you and I had heard so many things about your church and it is a CREC church, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. Um, so it's the first one that I visited. Um, and, and I just cannot describe what a wonderful time. And I don't mean that purely emotionally. Um, but what a wonderful time of worship that was. It was unlike any church service that I have ever been to worship service. Um, the joy that, is in that body is just contagious. I'm getting, I'm out in the parking lot there in front of the building, walking to my truck to drive back to Jacksonville that, that Sunday afternoon, there are people that followed me out there and, Oh, can you come back next week? And it was just remarkable. I'm like, I'm here in the parking lot, but thank you so much. I'm, I got to head back home. I'm here for my son. And, uh, so it, it was unlike anything I've experienced. So, I want to ask you something related to that issue of worship, and I'm going to do it by quoting your friend and, and my friend, um, Andrew Sandlin. It's something he posted on social media a few days ago. It, it's one paragraph, but you'll get the point of this. He said, uh, one reason Christianity is afflicted with so many spiritual masochists is that too many of its churches use the Sunday service as an opportunity to berate the saints for their depravity. Some Mm. churches practice, in effect, a liturgy of masochism. But the Lord's Day is fundamentally a celebration of our Lord's resurrection and its glorious victory in our lives and world. And then he concludes with this line, which I just love. The liturgy should never be a funeral dirge, rather a victory march. Now, based on what I witnessed there and participated in it at Providence, it was no funeral dirge. It was definitely a victory mark, but you did recognize and confess sin, but then there was just this immense joy and all the congregation is regularly involved throughout that liturgy. But would you agree with him? This is a huge problem for the evangelical church at large. It's a huge problem for the evangelical church. And the problem lies in the fact that they don't know it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where the, the complications uh, arise, is that the evangelical experience has been so shaped by the, the revivalist era, the Charles Finney era, that they have lost track of how history has functioned. And in many ways, history functions in a kind of similar parallels in terms of how you think about the themes of history. If you are a Christian historically, you can place your emphasis on the liturgy, on the death of Jesus, or in some traditions on the resurrection of Jesus. What we have done at Providence, and I think we're following historical models, is we have said that both the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus needs to go hand in hand. It's uh, two sides of the same coin. However, if we make the service befitting the crucifixion of Jesus, the Passion Week, that service is not going to reflect the glory of the resurrection, the ascension. And so what we do at Providence, if I, if I were to summarize it, my, my elevator pitch would say that the beginning of the service functions to reflect the crucifixion of Jesus. So there is a, there's a call and there's a confession of sins. But when Jesus rises from the dead, so the confession of sins covers the first, you know, 10% of the service. The resurrection of Jesus and the ascension covers the other 90%. Yeah. Which means that uh, the children of God need to come. They need to be cleansed. Their lips need to be made clean. Their woes need to be erased. Their sins need to be covered. But that can't be the sole focus of the service. 
Otherwise, you're creating a, a congregation of introspectionist experts. But if the death of Jesus is a part of the service in the beginning where it should be, I think, we confess our sins, then everything else from the confession to the end becomes an act of cleansing. And that's what I believe the resurrection and the ascension do. They, they cleanse the world of transgressions, and they provide the paradigm wherefore the church can think through what it means to cleanse the world of their transgressions. So the church has to be cleansed first so that she can be commissioned to cleanse the world. I wonder, do you think, and, and this just occurred to me, when you read the Gospels, if you were doing a word count, but in this case you were doing a topic count, and you're looking at uh, the Passion Week, you've, you've got more content in the Gospels about that Passion Week than you really do the resurrection. The, the resurrection is kind of the end mark, but do you think that the church is kind of, both because of the revivalistic influence, but also because we're just so so centered on looking at what's primary in Scripture, what's literally the most important thing that the pages tell us about, that that's kind of caused the church at large to defer more towards the front end and the emphasis on depravity and sin, and you, the goal of the church is to get you saved, and that's really it, and they yeah, yeah. have less emphasis on the glory of the resurrection and what that actually means for us. Part, part of that, part of that's true, but you, you look at it as a, as a, as a complete package and you see that yeah. if the gospels portray, let's say the gospel of John portrays several acts, several acts of crucifixion in a few chapters. And then chapter 21 and on, we give a, a full picture of the resurrection. If that's the case, we have to realize that the gospels provide a historical account, right? The confession, the, uh, the creeds say he was, um, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. It's very crucial that the Gospels, as a historical record of Jesus, portrays the details of the crucifixion in historical categories, mm -hmm. which is why it dedicates more time to that. However, what we need to see after that is that beyond those four Gospels, you get 25 books right. that elaborate on the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which means the preponderance is going to be on the life lived, on on the rule of Jesus over the churches and over the nations. So that's kind of how you, you put these things together. And I think the evangelical church has looked at the cross, and in some ways it has made the cross sort of the end-all of the Christian existence so that we have our sins forgiven, but then we don't have our lives played out after our sins are forgiven. It's kind of like this. The way the way I phrase it is like this: that most evangelical interpretations make Genesis three their starting point of theology. And if you make Genesis three your starting point of theology, then sin is going to be the thing that shapes everything you do. But what if? Uh, work with me here, bud. What if you begin? <laughs> I can kind of your, see where you're going, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what if you begin your theology in Genesis one? And then you have a picture of how things ought to be so that you can understand how things ought not to be. And I think that is a similar way of evangelical, how they interpret the Bible, is they begin with sin, they are grateful, and there's a lot of a lot of nothing but the bloods happening. They're grateful for how the blood functions and what it does and covering our sins and the atonement and all that. But there's a missing gap. And here's one little liturgical element, which I think is very missing the evangelical world, is that most evangelicals, let's say 95%, uh, have no tolerance for the church calendar. They think it's very, it's a Roma it's a Roman kind of Roman. thing, you know? Sure it is, of course, right. <laughs> <laughs> and and then, but then they decorate their Sundays, and Easter Sunday, it's the biggest day of the year, Easter Sunday, right? And then the day after Easter, there's nothing else. The next Sunday, there's nothing else about Easter. They carry on with their normal routine. But the church historically has spent 50 days after Easter Sunday celebrating Easter, mm -hmm. which means that's longer than how long they think about the crucifixion. So even throughout church history, the church has recognized that what shapes our theology is the resurrection of Jesus, not an exclusion to of the, the, the crucifixion, but as a response to the crucifixion and many evangelicals live as if we're still in the crucifixion. 
And that affects everything. As you mentioned, you you already uh, alluded to this. It's going to affect the way you do the Lord's Supper, but feel free to follow up on that. But I want to stop right there. No, but I think that's uh, that's tremendous, particularly the point backing up a couple of minutes to what you said is that you end the Gospels with a resurrection and the rest of the New Testament is essentially the efficacy of that resurrection. Yes, this is how it plays out. And this if you go back to to Genesis one, and of course, Doc Sandlin with his creational worldview and all that, you go back to Genesis one, like you're talking about, you'll see what the end goal is. I mean, in Isaiah, the Lord says, I declare the end from the beginning. Well, you can't figure out your eschatology unless you've started at the front end of the book, uh, to know where are we going? So, uh, that, that is tremendous. So, okay. Yeah. We talked about, I was going to ask you about, uh, the Lord's supper. Um, you guys do that every week, right? We do it every week. Yes. Okay. Why do you do that? You know that most churches don't do that. <laughs> I do though. Most churches don't do that, especially here in the South where we live. We are yeah. definitely uh, oddballs. And that was a little bit of also of, a, of a, a maturing position that I took when I was 18, 19 years old. I didn't think through these categories. I just thought of, of, of the Lord's supper as the kind of thing to remember and, you don't want to spend too much time remembering because then you'll, you'll lose the fervor of it. To which a friend of mine also replied, what if, what if why don't you apply that to tithing in the church? <laughs> but no, wow, good no, we, point. <laughs> we must do that weekly. Trust me. We must do tithing business. But I think when I began to shift my attention to what the Lord's Supper actually meant from, and I'm, I'm a reform minister, a Presbyterian minister, when I began to understand how history interpreted 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. I began to view the Lord's Supper uh, differently. And the Lord's Supper was no longer sort of this opportunity to remember the details of my gospel memories of, of the crucifixion, of the Passion Week. But it was actually a memorial. And that's the way I interpret that word. It's not uh, the remembrance. Can, it can be a fitting word. But when we, uh, when we use it in our English vocabulary, it becomes merely the art of looking back to the past. Whereas a biblical memorial in the Old and New Testaments, as we see in the, the Ark of the Covenant, a biblical memorial is not our way of remembering the past. It's God's way of remembering his promises to us right. in the past, in the present, and in the future. And so I realized at that point, I said, uh-oh, This is going to change a bit of the way I think about this practice. And then I realized that the church had done weekly communion up till the 1850s. And then I had to dig a little further. And I realized that the the very mention of the Lord's Supper description says, do this as often as you drink of me. Yeah. And I realized, well, if this is a really good thing, why would I want to drink less of it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So these are kind of some practical ways. But I think the, the biblical rationale really compelled me to say, that if what I'm doing in the Lord's Supper is an act beyond simply looking back, but looking to the future, then it ought to be shaped in a different mood. And the Bible is very clear about what mood that is. When you come into God's presence, you come with glad hearts and hearts of thanksgiving, which means that if the church itself is defined by its corporate nature, that when I have my head bowed and I closed, I'm literally forsaking the command and the definition of what it means to be church. I'm isolating myself and I'm making church my own little private closet. You're back to the subjectivism you mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what is, what is striking and I've been reading, studying uh, this sacrament for a, for a while. And it is that issue of memorial. And it's not to remind me of something. It's like the rainbow. I mean, what does the Lord tell us? You know, I will see this. And I will not flood the earth again. It's a reminder to him. And here we are in a worship environment, and we're going to partake of this supper. And we are reminding the Lord of what you have done for us. You've poured out your grace for us and your son. And it's it's the memorial we bring to him in honor and reverence and in pursuit of continued grace. I don't know that that's the right way to say all that, but that's how I've kind of come to understand it. So uh, I think I think you're right, and there's there's a standard sort of pious responses. But God doesn't need to be reminded of anything. Yeah. Well, but if you it, when you say that kind of thing, this is goes back to a conversation uh, that I think we said in the beginning. If you say that kind of thing, what you are saying 
is you're imposing your language upon the scriptures and how God uses language. Yeah. But if you use the language of the scriptures, then you realize, no, no, God delights in being reminded of things. Yeah. Right. He doesn't need to, but his very character is a God who is reminded of his promises, which is assuring. When, when little children come to dad and say, dad, this is what I want for Christmas. And if dad completely stops reminding you of that day, uh, you know, you lose hope in some ways. It could be yeah. a nice surprise, but there's, a, there's an assurance that we receive when God says, remember what I promised you? Well, that will surely come to pass because that is how I am. Yeah, exactly. And and God is honored and pleased when his children know his promises and repeat them back to him. And yes, full faith and trust that he will do, you know, what he has, has promised. Um, now, a little more on on that sacrament. I, I like okay. I, I didn't know you came from a Baptist background. I came from a bad Baptist background. Um, all my exposure to taking the Lord's table has been, you know, kind of heads down, like you just mentioned, eyes closed, and you're sort of going through this gut wrenching scraping of your heart to find every possible sin you haven't confessed yet so that you can confess it and that you would be through that self-examination worthy now to, to take the cup and, and, and the bread. That's not how you guys do this. <laughs> uh, not in that sort of way. Explain your view of, of how you actually administer the table. You, you, you fence the table, but it's not this emphasis on you're not worthy. To do. The only reason I would be worthy is because he's done that, uh, for me. So, Right. And I think that's, that goes back again to the conversation about there, there's this, uh, what, what Dr. Sandlin said, there's this kind of worm theology that, um, uh, it builds uh, wonderful victims. It doesn't build wonderful victors. And that's, that's very problematic, but I think I'll explain it in two ways. I think there's a, a more practical way that I think, uh, parents at home will be able to sort of grasp and then a more sort of theological way. The first way is that the Lord's table is a Think of the Lord's table as the big table, and then think of what happens at home as the little table. This is kind of the distinction I make in the, the book I edited some years ago. The little table is the table that we experience at home. It's the breakfast, lunch, supper table. When we're gathering at home during supper, I have five kids. It would be a horrendous exercise in torture if I told all my kids to just keep your heads down and eat. Don't look up. Just keep doing this thing that human beings call eating. And apparently it's a ritual of survival. But do it. And don't you dare look up. And <laughs> as you're as you're doing it, I want you to remember how unworthy you are of eating this food that mommy and daddy provided. And keep doing it. And then when you're done, I'm going to tell you to open your eyes and then walk to your rooms. I think that's the impression. It, uh, obviously, it's not intentional, but that is the the practical result that we have when yeah. we disassociate these tables. And in the Bible, tables are very much connected. When the people of God ate together, there was feasting. In Deuteronomy, there is this great passage that that says, you know, by whatever your hearts desire, feast seven days and seven nights. And at the Lord's table, even though nobody practically does that supper, there's an expectation of conversation, of greeting one another, of sharing about each other's lives. When we come to the Lord's Supper, which is the big table given by an infinitely more glorious father who, when we ask for bread, does not give us a stone. When we come to that, we think we can do precisely that, which is keep our heads down and eye closed and forsake the communing with one another. And that's a, that's a dangerous precedent because I think one table affects the other. So the way you do the Lord's table, the big table is going to affect everything else. And so I, obviously I don't want, this is just merely anecdotal, but I do think you lose the joy of home life when the Lord's table doesn't reflect what you expect at home. And so at our church, what we do is we keep these things together. We want the overflow of the Lord's table to overflow into our homes. And so we look at each other as the wine and bread are being passed. We greet each other with the peace of Christ. 
with the Lord be with you, which is, by the way, is the greeting in the Bible in Ruth chapter two, the Lord be with you. These are biblical greetings, not things made up by ancient priests. Yeah. And so the people greet one another and their eyes are open, which is precisely how the Bible entails these things take place. We look at each other and in the Lord's Supper, Paul says, we're partaking of a table of thanksgiving. It's really hard to be grateful for the church if our eyes are not looking at someone else. It'd be the equivalent of doing your vows in the wedding without looking at your bride. Yeah, yeah. And that that kind of thing is is antithetical. That's the practical reason, and I think that the theological reason of it, I mentioned earlier about the resurrection, but it's that one thing that the resurrection does to the disciples is it changes their demeanor. Their moods are completely shattered by what took place at the crucifixion. But then, at the ascension of Jesus in Luke 24, when Jesus ascends, he gives them a benediction. It says, and they return to the temple temple with feasting and, and joy. Mm-hmm. And I think when you come into the temple, you come with feasting and joy. If the mood of preparation of the temple is one of already feasting and joy, imagine what the temple is like. Yeah, It's additional joy, especially when we are celebrating the the deeds that Jesus has done for us. I, I just, it's phenomenal. I, I have not experienced anything like that. And it was so joyful because you were, I was doing exactly, and I didn't know any of these people. I mean, I knew Zach and here I am greeting. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. And everybody is rejoicing over what we are celebrating in this memorial uh, before God. Uh, it was not like, oh, I've got to make sure I'm, did I, I thought something horrible on the drive over to church this morning. Have I confessed that? And am I, no, it's, it was completely unlike anything I've seen. So I'm, I'm grateful that you would speak to it. I, I think, I think folks, pastors, elders, they need to consider what is the effect of the manner in which you do these things and particularly the Lord's table, I think. Uh, just critical. I like it every week. It's, uh, the Lord's not going to forget what he's done. I I want to make sure he knows. I remember what he, you know, um, now I, I mentioned your, your church is, uh, um, in the CREC and you have, you hold a position there. You, the presiding minister over a presbytery there, or I'm the president. We have, uh, eight, presbyteries technically okay. right now and i'm the presiding minister of one of them which covers around eight states here in the south okay so it's called the athanasian presbytery athanasius presbytery i've been okay. the presiding minister for about two years and essentially what that means is i have a the opportunity to prepare the agenda for our meetings and uh, and then do some pastoral oversight over these local churches in our presbytery we have if you count mission churches close to 20 okay okay well, that's not in your bio from your church website, so you might need to go edit that part too. To I'll, I'll tell my secretary, <laughs> which is my wife. Well, uh, it's to update things. Yeah, it's uh, it's correct title is Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and I think it's probably most well known for Doug Wilson and Christ Church in Moscow. Um, which you were recently in Moscow. You were at a conference for New Saint Andrews College, I think, is what you were that's doing. Right. That's right. Um, yep. But tell me about the CREC. Why why that denomination? Why is your church affiliated with with it? The CREC has become in these last we're celebrating a 25th anniversary um coming up very soon here and I, the CREC has become a body in many ways a a, a kind of like a refugee camp, you know, a, a haven of rest. For people who have been in denominations that have sometimes faltered, they have faltered, as I mentioned earlier, in their in their commitment to the norm, their commitment to the history, or their commitment to the practice of the church. And at that point, when people have known we're in existence, and when I came, we were very small. There were only about thirty churches. Now we have, you know, over a hundred now. We're much, there's much more uh, knowledge of who we are, and we became much more. A prominent during the COVID era when I think we were the only denomination who put out a significant statement on the issue there. Mm-hmm. 
when that happened, we became quite well known. And a lot of the visitors to our church uh, come because they're aware of how we feel about these issues. But the CREC has been able to provide a cohesive way of looking at the world, whereas denominations, as they have grown, they have scattered to the wind. Some have embraced woke ideology. Others have embraced some form of soft liberalism. Others have become comfortable with gay clergy. Others have become doubtful about narratives in the Old Testament. And all these things you expected from these conservative bodies are beginning to be uh, given away as gifts to secular scholars and to secularists. And the CREC has been able to keep this cohesive vision, I think primarily because of some of the founding members of our denomination, of whom Doug Wilson is one. There are many others. But these voices have, from the beginning, said we will not apologize for the Bible. And come what may, the COVID hysteria or whatever collapse of civilization may come, or made-up collapse, our position yeah. remains consistently through it. And so when people saw that, that our churches here has in Scambia County, which is where I live in the panhandle of Florida, that out of 330 churches, we were maybe one of two churches, perhaps the only church that remained open every single Sunday yeah. from March of 2020, obviously, to this day here. That grabbed their attention and they began to ask questions of their own bodies. Why are we doing this? And trust me, we had plenty of work for our own. We weren't seeking other members. Yeah. But what began to happen is that people in California, in Colorado, in Oregon, in Washington, other parts of the country, specifically blue states, begin to ask these questions. And so a great exodus began. These folks began to study the CREC. They became aware of the many social uh, media resources we have. And then these families began to move. And so we have grown significantly because we have provided a consistent, reformed, but also a political vision for society. And that has kept the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches very much on the forefront of thought, at least within the Reformed, uh, the reformed world. Yeah. I wasn't going to go into all the Kuyperian view that you hold. I, I love it, though. I agree with it. So, but, but one of the things that just strikes me is that those few churches that did remain open, what, what that did was encourage genuine believers who may be in nominal churches elsewhere that shut down because Romans 13, you know, right. um, they start, the Lord moves his people around. I mean, he's, he's shaking You know, Hebrews talks about he's shaking things and the things that remain can't be shaken. And he's, he's moving those people around and it's, it is an encouragement to see that. And it, an encouragement is not necessarily, um, an effect on my emotions. It's really an effect on my will. It's to cause me to have convictions and willful courage to act on those convictions. And I think that the CREC with what, uh, those churches did with the COVID, with the pan pandemic, um, that gave that encouragement. I have these convictions. I just need somebody to kind of be an example, and and the Lord's moved people as a result of that. So that's tremendous. One of the other things, though, that I really like about the CREC is very creedal and it is confessional. And here's the interesting thing: you have, if I'm not mistaken, you've got churches that are Westminster. You got churches that are London Baptist. Is that right? There's a mix of um, confessional stances that the churches can hold and other other confessions, uh, and, and it's creedal. So just a real practical question. When you guys all get together and you've got your Reformed Baptist brothers joining with the Presbyterian Westminsterian guys, how, how does it not devolve into a battle over baptism or a battle over regenerate church membership? How, how do you guys avoid this kind of thing? I think the Reformed Baptists that are interested in the CREC, and there are many today, I think what they see is the bigger picture. Yeah. And if they can see the bigger picture, then they know that when they're coming to CREC, there are areas where they have to be more open to, right? And um, and we have to make adjustments, too, as Presbyterians, to our Baptist brothers coming in. And so I think we both see these realities, and we both see that our theological differences, though they're significant, they're not nearly as significant as the battles that the kingdom 
that the kingdoms the kingdom of darkness brings to our attention. Yeah. And so we, we have learned to find this common ground in many ways. And then we've learned to kind of, you know, smoke our cigars and talk about the differences in other places. But we don't make that the 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 center of our of our existence because we know there is a, a bigger battle raging. And we also know that that every every tradition today needs to realize that the the loyalty to their tradition, however significant it may be, um, cannot keep those traditions from binding with other traditions who love Jesus Christ. Yeah, because the very nature of Catholicity, the kind of thing that we confess, we believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, demands this unity, which has been you know a, a theme of of history. But when when churches have disbanded and said, you know, this is this is the only road you shall go. What, what that produces is a kind of dysfunctional society that can't cohesively respond to the political attacks of the day. And I think, I honestly think that COVID was one of the most prosperous seasons of church life in my, you know, I'm, I'm only in my 40s. One of the prosperous seasons of church life, I think, in the last 40 years, because it allowed people to place greater priority where priority needs to be placed yeah. and to diminish in some ways, at least the kinds of things they thought were, you know, unequivocally significant, but now they're able to realize that the kingdom of God is greater than, um, that, that certain, even eschatological issues. I'll just end with this here. I mean, think about the reality that John MacArthur, who is a rabid dispensationalist, probably honestly, one of the greatest ones living probably in history, since yeah, dispensationalism yeah. is not very old anyway, uh, that John MacArthur, in some ways, he wouldn't admit it, but he forsook his eschatological commitment and essentially said, you know, I am going to, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge the church as to be something essential and that cultural battles, they are certainly worth fighting for, which is a contrast to the kinds of statements he made before, yeah. where he said the church is here to lose and culture is insignificant, politics is insignificant, and suddenly these catastrophic moments brings everybody to their senses. Yeah, And so yeah. I'm grateful that I could be together, and I spoke very positively and wrote very positive about John MacArthur. I was, I was grateful that I could see him not only as the hero I, ever thought, I, I always thought he was, but as someone who is able to fight the battles despite his our theological differences. I, I think that's tremendous, and I didn't have that. I saw what you wrote with regards to that and the attacks that he was getting for we lose down here, but yet here you are doing this. These two things don't line up. And you gave a gr very gracious bit of wisdom on how a Christian ought to think about that circumstance. You know, and it's interesting because I have run in circles that are, are largely – uh, dispensational. Um, and I love those brothers, but when they find out I'm post mill, you know, I catch all this grief, but what I say back to them, I'm like, but do you go to the abortion clinics and you're doing ministry there? And are you sharing the gospel and you're raising your children in the nurture and admonition? Then you're doing all the things that you should be doing. Now you don't have your eschatology, right? In my view, but that's okay. I I'm thankful. It's kind of a happy, um, coincidence, you know, or a happy inconsistency that the Lord is leading them to do what they do faithfully, uh, kind of in spite of a more dogmatic view that they might espouse on eschatology or, or theology. So, uh, right. I, I think it's tremendous, um, d on the issue of creeds and confessions, um, is that a, a failure of the church at large? We, we've abandoned that, um, we've lost track of history and, and what would you think maybe are the causes for that? Obviously the revivalism, but, uh, right. church growth methods, um, secret sensitive stuff. I mean, if you're compromising the gospel and you're only preaching from a few books of the new Testament, yeah. um, the, the church can't become healthy again, unless it re restores its, its history and teaches its history. Right. That's exactly right. And I think that's part of the sort of the threefold model I articulated earlier. So yeah. you have a normative, but you also have a, a uh, John Frame calls it a situational perspective, which is a, a historical historical context in which you find your history. So you can say, this is what my great grandfather in the faith said. 
If, if you break these historical lineages, you become a cult into yourself. You become a creed into yourself, which is why, of course, you know, when you say you don't have a creed or my creed is Jesus in my Bible, well, behold, you've just uh, written your own creed. So it's, it's inevitable. The concept of creeds are inevitable. The question is, will our, in our local churches uh, find themselves to be part of a greater reality or will they view themselves as self-sufficient, self-created realities, which I think is what many traditions try to do, is they want to sort of reinvent the church life without the wisdom of the church. And the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And if you don't pursue wisdom from our own histories, in essence, you're not fearing God. Yeah. And that, that's problematic because when human beings historically have formulated their own creeds, it has led to remarkable heresies. And we think of, of, of Arius or Marcion, or you think of uh, even more modern thinkers like Charles Finney. Yeah. And so we will always have a creed. Our distaste for creeds comes for a couple of reasons. It comes for our distaste of what we perceive to be Roman Catholics. And I am, you know, uh, I grew up in the largest Roman Catholic country in the world, so yeah. I, I understand a little bit about that world. Um, I am Protestant for a reason. I have um, not one, but hundreds of disagreements with Rome that I think are very significant. But I think we realize that, I'll give you a prime example of this. One time, someone came to our congregation and said, um, why did you guys do that Roman Catholic prayer? And I said, what Roman Catholic prayer? They said, the one that began with our Father who art in heaven. And, wow. And at that moment, that person gave me an interesting illustration to use is that they believed that the kind of thing they had in their case, they had grown up with the Lord's Prayer at church, but they had certainly despised it. And they never connected the fact that that wasn't just a random uh, men written prayer it was something directly from the Gospel of Matthew and other Gospels as well. And so they think that anything that is that's read and that is repeated is something that ought to be avoided. When the reality is, back to my illustration about the table, the reality is there are thousands of rituals that we do every single day and that keep us and that allow us to survive in society. But then we think that the church ought to be inventing new things to do every Sunday. Yeah. Wow. When, 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 when the habits and the rituals we have during the week keep us alive, but now we think, well, if we don't make up a new song, if we don't make up a new practice, a new this, a new way of doing fellowship, a new way of doing the Lord's Supper, and I give you plenty of illustrations in that regard, then we're not doing the right thing. Then the Spirit's not moving. But historically, the Spirit has been rather conservative, let's say. He has preserved history. And has allowed history to prosper with the preservation of those rituals and the preservation of those creeds. And so, I mean, even the prime example of this is when we think about, we hear questions, but why did you say one holy Catholic and apostolic church? Oh, yeah. We're not Roman Catholics. Well, um, because the word Catholic means, doesn't mean what you think it means. Right, yeah, it, yeah. It means whole. It means universal. It means complete. It means total. And what I am saying with that statement is I'm being more, which is one reason why I'm not a Roman Catholic is because I'm too Catholic to be a Roman Catholic. <laughs> and I don't want the exclusivity of Rome. I want to be able to join hands with my Baptist and my conservative Methodist brothers, however few there are today. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to be able to join hands with these folks, even though we hold to um, different practices or different theological statements. Yeah. I just think, you know, and maybe this is a little too pragmatic but i think it's favorably pragmatic if you if you kind of reject or jettison the the confessions the creeds you're effectively denying what the lord through uh paul said he was giving to the church he's giving gifts of you know pastors and teachers well what have they done for 2000 years they they weren't inspired they weren't creating new scripture but they were illuminated to develop more fully, all these different things, all these, you know, the, the doctrine, the Nicene Creed, I mean, that took time and it got developed and the Holy Spirit is illuminating these faithful men to, to put in a corpus, a statement, what we understand, what we confess about the, the being, the natures of Christ. And if you reject those things, you're effectively denying what Paul said 
Christ is giving to his church. Why would you put yourself in that kind of theological and spiritual peril by thinking you got to like sit down me and my Bible and my Holy spirit. And that's all I need. Uh, you know, you're, you're thwarting your own desires there, even if you're sincere about those desires, let, let me, yeah. let me read you something you wrote and ask you to kind of expand on this. Cause I thought this was great because it speaks to the issue of culture. I think that most Christians sitting in pews today can look at culture and say, Oh yeah, that's Romans one going on out there. But I don't know that they necessarily know how to connect it to the church and put a hermeneutic to it, which is what you wrote. Um, you wrote, evangelicals cannot interpret culture because they do not understand the language of the scriptures, which bring life to cultures. Cultural life means enculturation in biblical language. And we kind of spoke to that earlier, but, but expand on that a little bit, connect it to how can we see that there's judgment going on and not be able to rightly interpret that judgment? Well, the sons of Issachar knew the times, and I don't think they just had the um, sort of prophetic uh, sense of what was going to happen. Is I think they understood the cycle of history and how that worked. If you look at the book of Judges, for example, you have um, things like you have, uh, you know, corruption, and then you have judgment, and then you have repentance, and then you have restoration. Yeah. And I think history functions in these kinds of cycles. And, and that means that the second cycle of restoration is going to look more beautiful than the first and the third, beautiful than the second, and on and on and on. And so I, I think we have built our understanding of history and culture through uh, through gurus and TikTok masters. Uh -huh. And we have failed to realize that the Bible is not just a, the place we go to get saved. It's a place we go to understand how history is saved. Mm -hmm. And that's why worship is so significant because worship is uh, like going to heaven, receiving God's blueprint, and then coming to earth and applying it. And so when we fail to grasp biblical language, when we don't know, for example, how the priesthood of Exodus 28 function, uh, we're going to have a poor understanding of how the new covenant priests, the royal priesthood ought to function. And it's interesting that the apostle Paul doesn't simply remove the language of sacrifice he actually says no no we are now living sacrifices and so paul is again going back to his first language and he's using that language so you you've probably experienced this bud but when if when when people come to jesus one of the things they will say if they're really interested in history they will say i i just want to study the book of revelation yeah and i i think to myself revelation has over 700 references to the Old Testament. In fact, one of my closest friends, uh, we mentioned him earlier, Dr. Peter Lighthart, wrote, I think, the largest commentary revelation in history. It's two volumes, probably a total of 1,200, 1,300 pages. I think to myself, if I don't know my Old Testament, I'm going to miss the entire argument of Revelation because John is so we see this already from his gospel, right? People yeah. always say, what's, what's John's Olivet Discourse? He doesn't have one. Matthew's got one in chapter 24. Mark's got one in, 20, in chapter 13. Luke's got one in chapter 21. Where is John's? Well, John's Olivet Discourse is the book of Revelation. It's Revelation, yeah. Which is completely dependent on the Old Testament. And so my call would be for a a, a uh, for, for churches to really give the people of God a healthy knowledge of how the cycles of history unfold in the Old Testament so that they can take that paradigm and say, huh, what is wokeism equivalent to? What God is woke wokeism equivalent to? Where did the church historically compromise in these things? And where do we need to shatter the Asherah poles, you know? Yeah. Where do we need to start tearing things down? And I, I will say this just as a, as a sneak peek. It's not in confederate monuments i can tell you that <laughs> i would agree with you yeah yeah it's not gonna do what it's you think not, it's gonna do it's not there it's gonna and we, we have chosen the evangelical church through these sort of woke uh, leaders have chosen the wrong monuments to tear down and sometimes they choose the wrong monuments to tear down while protecting the monuments they should tear down yeah and so that's just a little bit of the, the the disarray where the church finds itself today okay that's, that's exceptional. And uh, we've got a few more minutes. So I want to respect your time. Um, 
Mere Christendom by Doug Wilson. Just a quick comment on that. What do you, what's your take on the book? Uh, Doug Wilson's book has uh, his books have always been written in a way as a, as a, a populist style. He's a populist by nature. Yeah, it's not going to be. He's, he's not a research filled um, sort of thinker. He's the kind of guy who gets into the populist imagination. And he uh, makes academicians mad, which is why I think he's doing a good job. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Mere Christendom is sort of his attempt to uh, encapsulate what, how he views the post-millennial vision unfolding. So you right. must have, I argue that you must have a post-millennial perspective to understand what Christendom is. And he is, he is offering us sort of an analysis of what it means for nations to function together and how those nations can submit to, to Jesus. How do these corporate how, how this conglomeration of nations how do they embody this vision of christendom how should that take place and so as a result he sort of puts out a a vision that i think is, is very compelling that places the church where it should be i think which is at the center of the kingdom and he realizing that in every city um where you must begin in your capturing of that city is in the largest place of that city and the highest place of any city should be the steeple, should be the cross, should be the, the sounding bells. And so if the church, if the city, if the, the polis, the city loses its highest edifice, it's going to lose all the other ones. It's going yeah. to lose the market. It's going to lose the Wall Street. It's going to lose everything else. And so we have we have the one reason we have lost the battle is because our largest edifice, our tallest buildings have been given over to. Uh, to secularists. And so that yep. priority is off. And so the book, I think, is a wonderful distillation of what it means to recapture society and what it means to have these these lovely institutional relationships under the reign of Jesus Christ. I asked Zach a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, uh, I got him a copy of it. And uh, I said, now, is there a Christ is Lord billboard in Pensacola? He's like, I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, he knew what they were doing. So can you tell me, is there one? There's not one in Jacksonville. So there is uh, right. we have one. And uh, there was some confusion in the beginning. So I think we added, actually, we have another two months of it. And it's uh, interestingly enough, it's right near where the old uh, fundamentalist college resides here in Pensacola called Pensacola Christian College. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a stunning post-millennial sign that they would affirm too, but they would understand yeah. it very differently. Post-millennial sign right in the corridor that leads to the probably one of the most um, instrumental fundamentalist schools in the country. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a couple of closing questions for you. Uh, and these are just bullet point things because you brought it up uh, indirectly. Uh, favorite cigar? What's your favorite cigar? Uh, Cohibas for sure. Cohibas, okay. Okay. Uh, and then this one is a A or B, uh, scotch or bourbon? Man, I am not skilled in those arts. Um, <laughs> however, I have enjoyed a lot of Glenn Levitt because of the the scotch scholars here in my neighborhood. Oh, there you I, go. I, okay. I have an associate pastor who's kind of a connoisseur, and I follow his, his uh, recommendations. And so I've uh, enjoyed that. And I've... Um, it, like any art, I've learned to enjoy it much more so when done in community. Well, that's great. I, uh, you, you have, you're more sophisticated than me anyway. Scotch, I don't have the palate for that. So, you know, more, more power to you on that. I tend to stick with a Guinness or occasionally a Cabernet or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, just last thing, and then I'll let you go and, and thank you for your time. Is there something I haven't asked you that you wish I would have asked you? And what would that be? And, and give us the answer to it. I I, uh, I always want to have these conversations. I want to let the people know that I, I love my job as a minister. I love my job in every professional role I've been put in as a writer and author. But I have a, a, a tremendous heart for the little human beings that I have to shepherd on a regular basis and, and, and the wife of my youth that I've known for married for 20 years now, Melinda and my five kids, because I think in many ways, the, uh, the restoration of the home is very fundamental to our cultural pursuits. It's uh, the um, PJ O'Rourke usually said, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the, the dishes. Yeah. Right. And I, I think there's something legitimate to that. And I want to see men restored to their role at home, not only loving their 
their families, but in seeing their role as fundamentally connected to what happens in the household, not divorced from it. So while I, uh, I'm sure I, I have failed in this area many times, but I think I always want to come back to this fundamental theme, which is that that my my home is the place where the fabric of my existence is built, and it's it's the place where. Um, where I, I am most able to be myself as a human being. And therefore, I should be the best kind of human there at home. And I always want to put a plug for the the human beings in my home that are are gracious enough to have a father who, who travels quite a bit and does quite a bit, but are always happy to see me come back. That is tremendous. And praise God that he's given you the wisdom now to jump back into what that should look like in a Genesis 1 and 2 scenario. Yeah. And- not merely, you know, oh, struggling through the wickedness of my flesh. Right. No, right. you've got grace. Exactly. So, well, brother, thank you so much. It, it's a blessing. I, and it's the Lord's providence that took us a while to connect, but I'm thankful that you did this and took this time with me. And uh, I uh, am planning to bring my wife over for, for a visit, hopefully soon. Uh, so maybe we'll get to see you uh, at worship sometime again. I'll have a Guinness waiting for you, bud. Oh, well, that'll be wonderful. And Zach knows some kind of cigar bar, so maybe we can cruise <laughs> over there and <laughs> enjoy that. One of those awesome things. All right, Dr. Brito, thank you. God bless you. Yeah, my pleasure. Lord be with you. This concludes today's episode. You are now leaving the Bud Zone. I appreciate you listening, and I hope you'll continue doing so. I also hope you'll share these episodes with others who might be edified and encouraged by them. And just a reminder, no doctrines have been harmed in the production of this podcast. Remember, Christ has overcome the world. Go live like it. God bless.